What Dr. Nykerk may not remember is that when I was a freshman at the University of Delaware, uh, I took a freshman political science course uh, taught by one Dr. Leslie Goldstein, and her TA was a young grad student working on his master's degree named Jay Nykerk. Um, I, wasn't, I was in the small group section that Dr. Goldstein taught rather than, than uh, uh, Mr. Nykerk's, but uh, he, was, he was in that class when I was a college freshman 1976, and uh, three years later, I was Dr. Goldstein's TA in the same course when I was a, a senior at uh, Delaware. So, yeah, we and, and who knew that uh, 20 years later we'd be working here uh, at uh, at Geneva? I did spend five years on this campus. We had a vision to begin a Christian law school at Geneva College back in the 1990s, and uh, a man named Lynn Buzzard, who has been long been active in legal education and Christian ministry to lawyers and law students. Uh, he was the leader. He would have been the dean of the law school if he'd ever gotten off the ground, but he wasn't going to quit his job and move here. I was the guy who was willing to do that. And uh, so I spent five years on campus. Uh, we had a, a, a cute little building uh, up kind of on the corner between Alexander Hall and the uh, Bagpiper Theater uh, that's since been torn down. So it's just grass now, but that was our Center for Law and Public Policy. You know, so, so five good years, eventually the, you know, the uh, Lord made it clear that, that the law school wasn't going to happen here. I moved on to other things, but, but to come back is great fun. To see the stupid highway gone from the middle of, uh, of the campus is, is great delight. Bittersweet for me in some ways because some of the people who most meant Geneva to me are not here, either that they've gone on to other jobs or they've gone to be uh, with Jesus and thinking here, especially of Betsy Miller, who is my administrative assistant for uh, most of my time here. When you have two people in a two-person office, you get kind of close. Um, Dr. Howard Madsen-Bose, who's the one who really convinced me to take the job sitting on uh, his front porch and just talking about whatever, which is what Dr. Madsen-Bose can talk about, pretty much anything, uh, kind of convinced me, wow, this academic life, this life of the mind, uh, I think this is, this is for me. Um, Dr. David Carson, uh, the, the perfect gentleman, man full of wisdom and the, the fruit of the spirit, uh, and, and most especially uh, Dr. Jack White, who was, who was boss, friend, mentor, uh, just, just a great man of God. And so to come back and, and see this place without folks like that is a little bit hard. Okay, that's enough of the old guy reminiscing. Uh, let's, let's turn to our, our topic for the day. So we want to talk about this, this issue. What, what happens to our constitutional rights when we're in times of crisis? A particularly relevant question for us today, certainly the last 20 years, we've seen more than our share of, of crises and have had to see how the legislatures and the courts are going to, to play those out. Um, when I teach a constitutional law, I start my classes off with uh, some devotional thoughts. And I thought I would just briefly mention a couple of the scripture passages that I think are really relevant uh, to this issue, and they're familiar scripture passages, because I start with Genesis 1. And when you look at Genesis 1, one of the things that leaps out is this idea that human beings are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And I'm not a theologian. I don't claim to understand all the aspects of what it means to bear the image of the Creator. But what that tells me 
is that every human being is important, has value, has worth. Young, old, black, white, man, woman, born, unborn, if I may say so, gay, straight, trans, people, whether we agree with their views, whether we agree with their decisions, people have worth, people have value. And that's not too far removed from perhaps uh, even more familiar language. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights among these like liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Jefferson I was not a biblically orthodox Christian in any sense of the word, and yet like most of the founding fathers, they, they generally understood that there was a creator uh, and, and that people, people had significance. People have rights that must be protected. And so I start there and saying, as a Christian, I affirm the idea that we have fundamental rights. The government must protect those rights, must look out for individuals as opposed to so many governments through history and in some places of the world today that treat people as fungible. You know, if you lose a few few thousand here or there, what's the big deal? We're going to do the greater good. Uh, a Christian worldview and I think a constitutional perspective says every harm to a human being is bad and must be avoided if it can be, if it can be avoided. Um, second principle that, that touches on this, I think, uh, comes out of Genesis 3. In Genesis 3 is the fall. And in Genesis 3, we learn that there is not only within us that image of divine God, but there's also a sin nature that has infected us, that pulls us down. Every human being, save one who's ever walked the earth, Jesus, of course, being the only exception, has had this sin nature within us. And so what does that tell us in terms of a constitution, in terms of a structure of law and government? Well, uh, as, as uh, James Madison says, you have to pit ambition against ambition. You have to protect against any human having the power to become tyrannical or oppressive. Uh, and so we set up things called federalism and uh, separation of powers and checks and balances in order to create a system where uh, people will, uh, no one in government will have the ability to, to be oppressive, or at least as best we can, we can accomplish that. We don't trust in people to be altruistic. We anticipate that there is great selfishness in all of us, and so we try to structurally protect against that. So these fundamental rights are great. Um, there was a strong debate at the ratification level of the Constitution, whether we needed a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. The Federalists uh, said, no, the national government is so contained and so weak that it will never violate anyone's individual rights. The Anti-Federalists said, yeah, they could get bigger and more powerful. Guess who was right? The Anti-Federalists uh, have clearly won that debate. Um, and so we have the Bill of Rights. We also have a constitution under which the Supreme Court has identified other rights that aren't in the text, and that's more controversial and could easily be a talk in its own, but we'll just, we'll just pass over that. But what's happened is rights that may seem clear and obvious and easy to protect when life is good and things are smooth become more problematic 
when a crisis is perceived. I just want to go through and give you a few of the examples in our history where uh, things have been done by the government that are at least doubtful or at least questionable uh, from a constitutional perspective that perhaps we view as needing to be done uh, over time. Uh, the, uh, the first big political crisis of our nation uh, was the John Adams administration because Adams had as his vice president, the leader of the opposition party. At this point, uh, Adams and, and Jefferson pretty much hate each other. They were great friends earlier and would become friends again through correspondence before they died. But uh, the way the Constitution worked in those days before the 12th Amendment was that the person who got the most votes was president, the person who got the second most was vice president. So today, if we were still under that system, uh, President Biden would be serving with Vice President Trump. Imagine how much fun that would be. Or I guess depending on your views, maybe you think it would be President Trump and Vice President Biden. Well, I'm not going down, not going down that path. Um, so it's a very, very uh, dissension-filled time. The parties, which were not really anticipated by the founders, they didn't think about political parties really, they didn't plan for them, uh, have now become huge. And uh, so uh, in, in, in sort of a protective uh, approach to that, uh, Congress passes the Sedition Act. Uh, they also pass the, the Alien Friends and Alien en Enemies Act, which also were constitutional suspect. But the Sedition Act basically made it a crime to say bad things about the government. Imagine how long Rush Limbaugh would have stayed on the air if, if we had such a law today. He would have gotten about a week and nobody ever would have heard of him. Um, conspiring to oppose the government, but, but more importantly, writing or publishing criticism of the government. Now, truth was a defense. So, and in that way it was better than the old uh, British uh, seditious libel law. You could defend yourself if what you said was true, but of course in the political debate, the line between facts that can be proven true or false and spin, opinion, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not a clear line to draw. Um, clearly, clearly unconstitutional. Clearly a violation of First Amendment rights. If there's anything the First Amendment aims at, it's protecting the right of people to criticize the government. And, and John Adams should have known that. Because some scholars believe that his wife Abigail pressured him to sign it. I don't know, I wasn't there, I didn't. I'm old, but not that old. Um, so we don't, we don't really know. Um, as a result, you had another kind of huge constitutional stress point in that the states pushed back. Virginia and Kentucky passed what were called the Virginia Resolutions and the Kentucky Resolutions, uh, which were written respectively by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, which essentially said the Sedition Act is unconstitutional, Congress was wrong to pass it, the President was wrong to sign it, and we nullify it. We won't follow that. The, uh, they also suggested that the state would interpose itself between its citizens and the national government to protect against this act, this idea of interposition and nullification, that the states will stand between an unconstitutional action and the citizens is still around. Uh, it, is, it got a very bad, ugly taste uh, in the 1950s and 60s when it was being used uh, by Southern segregationists to fight against desegregation, they would say no Brown versus Board of Education is wrong and we will fight against it. Governor George Wallace uh, famously standing on the schoolhouse, schoolhouse steps 
defying federal troops to bring the black kids into a public school. Um, huge, huge constitutional crisis, uh, a statute that violated very fundamental individual rights. That one diffused uh, because uh, Jefferson defeated uh, Adams in the, in the 1800 election, which caused another whole set of issues, but uh, long, long story short, Jefferson uh, was able to pardon everyone who'd been convicted under the Sedition Act, and it, and it was, uh, was repealed and went away. Jump ahead to the Civil War. Um, I lived for a number of years in, in Maryland. Maryland was enormously important to the Civil War. I think by the time the secessions had happened, you had uh, basically the South up to Virginia as part of this warring nation, the Confederacy, which the United States didn't recognize as a nation. The United States said this is just an attempted insurrection within our, within our country. But Maryland was one of the slave states, used a southern slave state along with Delaware and uh, uh, Missouri and Kentucky that were kind of on the fence whether they were going to secede. It ended up that they all stayed in the Union as did the western uh, counties of Virginia that split off and became West Virginia around the same time. But, but if Maryland had seceded and joined the Confederacy, well, if you know anything about geography, if you think about Virginia, Confederate, and you think about Maryland Confederate, and by the way, where's the nation's capital? Washington, D.C. is smack between the two. You would have had the capital located squarely in the middle of enemy territory, and obviously uh, the Union would have had to just abandon Washington and go set up a capital in Poughkeepsie or somewhere. I don't know where they Beaver Falls. They would have come to Beaver Falls, and the history would have been very different for, for everyone. Um, this uh, Lincoln does all kinds of things to try to make sure that Maryland does not leave the Union. Um, the, the election, the free election, where people voted on whether to secede, there were a lot of federal troops standing around polling places, uh, looking scary and intimidating. Um, and they also shut down people who were going to speak out on behalf of the Confederacy, in particular a, a fellow named Merriman, uh, was grabbed by federal troops, thrown into a military prison, and uh, and kept there. Uh, and he petitioned for a writ of habeas corpus, which is the legal writ that asked the asked a federal court to get me out of prison and give me a trial. I'm being held. I don't know why I'm being held. I haven't had any chance to get to defend myself. Give me a trial in an Article Three court. And uh, Lincoln had suspended the writ of habeas corpus. The problem is. Power to, to suspend the writ habeas corpus, although the wording is a little bit fuzzy. Passive voice. Do the English professors here teach you that passive voice is bad because it hides the identity of the actor? Somebody's told you that at some point, right? So it's written in passive voice. It's a little bit confusing, but it's written in, pow in the powers and limitations of Congress. And the Chief Justice, Roger Taney, himself a Maryland, Marylander and slave sympathizer. Uh, ruled that no, Lincoln, you don't have the power to suspend things for us. Congress couldn't. Well, Congress got out of Dodge. They're scared about what's about to happen. And they're, they're not there. There isn't a Congress sitting at the present time. Uh, and Lincoln divided. Lincoln said, no, I'm sorry, uh, Chief Justice Connie. Uh, I'm not following that order. I need to protect the whole nation. And I'm not going to get caught up in a debate over the niceties of who suspends the writ of habeas corpus if letting these southern provocateurs run loose in Maryland might cause uh, the, union, the union to go down. 
Uh, World War II, we saw, we saw other examples. Um, the, perhaps the most dramatic, uh, the case of Korematsu versus, versus the United <laughs> States, uh, where the, uh, uh, the United States government issued military orders dealing with all uh, American citizens of Japanese ancestry living on the Pacific coast. So Fred Korematsu brought the, uh, brought the case and got it all the way to the Supreme Court. He was not a Japanese citizen. He was a, an American citizen. He, his life was here in the United States, but his ancestry was Japanese. And so he, along with the other, uh, many, many other Japanese Americans, uh, on the uh, on the Pacific Coast uh, were were put into I guess I'll say concentration camps now not not certainly in the sense of, like Nazi concentration camps where they were putting Jews in in ovens and, and they weren't being murdered uh, but they were confined they were they were living in little barracks and there was a fence around the thing and they did not have the freedom to leave they had to stay stay in these camps uh, and it gets to uh, the Supreme Court, and the court essentially says the president and the military have to do what they got to do in times of war. And you just, you know, it's not, you know, it's easy for us to sit here in, uh, in our nice comfy courthouse and say, oh, no, no, that's, uh, that's not right. They're citizens. They should have, you know, unless you have evidence, unless you can try them for treason, unless there's something to tell us that they committed treason or about to commit treason, you can't just lock citizens up because you think maybe they might know people or because of their ancestors or, uh, but the Supreme Court says, no, it's, it's okay, it's okay. Um, interesting dissent by, by a very famous Justice Robert Jackson, who essentially said, I don't fault the military for doing what they did. They were trying to contain a potential crisis at the time it happened, but now we're sitting here in this nice, comfortable courtroom and if we, put our imprimatur on this. If we say, oh yeah, that's okay, uh, then, then we're making it much worse because our precedent will have much more future effect than a short-term emergency thing done by the president and the military. The Supreme Court has just a couple of years ago repudiated uh, the Korematsu decision uh, and, and stated, I guess, I guess overruled, although not, you know, on its facts, it's not before them again. Uh, that had, had uh, stated that it was wrongly decided and they rejected. The um, let's get let's get a little closer in time. Let's go back 20 years, which is what uh, generated the activities going going on this week, uh, and talk about what's happening around 9/11, uh, 2001. Um, one of the big responses to that was the USA Patriot Act, uh, which was designed to give uh, intelligence agencies and operatives uh, more ability to collect information and uh, soften some of the rules that would normally be followed. Uh, uh, normally to do a search, what's called a search under the Fourth Amendment, to do a wiretap, to you know, break into somebody's office and move their papers. Normally the government has to have probable cause, which is reasonably good reason for thinking that there's criminal activity, and they have to get a warrant, a search warrant. You've got to go before a judge, a magistrate, some um, not connected person, and get them to look over your probable cause and approve it, and say, 
yes, I'm going to give you a warrant to go in and search. Well, the Patriot Act softened all of that. It made it easier for the government to, to spy on suspected terrorists, people who were thought to have terrorist links. You didn't necessarily have to have probable cause. You didn't have to have a warrant to put wiretaps on people's phones. Some of the Patriot Act, I think, is is, is pretty pretty easy beyond beyond question. It encouraged better intelligence sharing among uh, the different agencies, and I think that's that's a great thing. That was that was a very pos uh, positive thing, um, and it increased some of the uh, some of the penalties for terrorist crimes. Again, no problem with that. But the uh, enhanced ability of the government to search, wiretap, gather information uh, without warrants, uh, very controversial from the start. A lot of people uh, fought against that, a lot of lawsuits filed, and, uh, and it's been fought over for much of the last 20 years. Now, most of the Patriot Act at this point has, has expired, it just hasn't been, hasn't been removed by, by Congress, and so we're not seeing much much argument about that. But once again, at least arguably, and I'm not going to say for sure, but at least arguably, this was violating people's Fourth Amendment rights. They were being subjected to searches that, that could be unconstitutional. Why? Because we're trying to prevent something horrible. We're trying to prevent another 9-11. Uh, most of you in this room are too young to remember watching those towers go down, but it was a, it was a terrifying, terrifying day for pretty much all, all Americans uh, at that point. And, and we were desperate. We didn't know how many foreign terrorists are were in our country and what they may be planning next and where are they, uh, you know, they going to go. And the, uh, so the Patriot Act was, was based out of an effort to protect, to somehow keep Americans from dying. And that's you know, typically what's going on in these crisis situations. We have things where Americans may die. We're trying to protect people's lives, protect people's safety, protect people's health. And so do we stretch, do we push, and we often do. We often say, yeah, we're gonna let some constitutional rights go in order to uh, you know, go after the greater good, the, the, uh, the, the greater protection for our, for our people. Um, That brings us up in this really high flyover. I could have spent you know, 10 hours talking about this instead of, instead of less than one. Um, let's move it up to, to the present. We've got a pandemic. We've got people, lots and lots of people in the United States have died uh, from COVID-19. And we have a lot of different reactions. It's unfortunately become uh, a very political, um, barometer of, of where people stand on their reactions to COVID. Um, the government has not helped its case by being inconsistent. Uh, Dr. Fauci uh, may be a brilliant scientist and physician, but he has flip-flopped all over the place so many times that I don't think many people have confidence in him anymore. Uh, President Trump took different positions. President Biden has taken different positions at different stages of the game as have other members of the Trump and the Biden administration. Sometimes we're told masks are essential. Sometimes we're told masks don't help. Sometimes we're told vaccines will solve this. Then we're told, well, you can still get it even if you're vaccinated. Um, people don't know what to believe. And different 
areas of government have responded in different ways. We have seen uh, issues over masking. We have seen issues over distancing. Uh, many churches were shut down uh, by their governments. Uh, some either shifted all online or shifted to maybe a very small number of people distanced in the sanctuary and everyone else online. That's what the, the church that I serve as an elder, we, we were uh, no, we, nothing live at all for a short period, but then we went back to, to distanced and, and are still in that world today. But in some places, California has taken some very strong stands. Um, and now we're looking at the question of vaccine mandate. Does it violate constitutional rights if the government orders you uh, to to be vaccinated? Now, there's a Supreme Court case from 100 years ago, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, that said that the states have power to mandate a vaccine. That even if you are opposed, even if you believe I have medical reasons, um, basically you're going to have to go to the legislature and get them to to give you an exemption, but you don't have any constitutional right to be free if the government free believes it's a crisis and that vaccination is the solution. That's the states. And under our constitutional system, at least in theory, maybe not, uh, hasn't worked very well in the last hundred years or so, but at least in theory, the states have what we call police powers. Police powers doesn't mean people in blue uniforms, it means the general power to act for the good of the people, to legislate for the good of the people, unless the Constitution stops it. Whereas the national government is supposed to have the opposite default setting. No action unless the Constitution authorizes it. We call it a government of limited, enumerated powers. And that got pretty badly damaged in the period from 1937 to 1995. It's come back a little bit since then, but not too much. But there's still a, a, a serious question out there. Does the federal government have the power to do this in the first place? Uh, second question, whether the, uh, the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, has statutory authorization to mandate vaccines for all employers with over 100 employees. It's not typically what OSHA do, does. Typically, OSHA deals with things that happen at the place of employment. Um, you know, you can't leave sharp needles lying around. You've got to put them in red bins. You can't have, you know, if you're in a steel mill, you can't have a big vat of molten metal without a railing around it. And, you know, OSHA normally focuses on what happens in the workplace rather than what you do outside of work and whether that makes you a risk to others when you come into work. So there's questions there. Um, there's there's uh, uh, questions of individual liberty. Do people have a religious freedom right? If you have a religious conviction that you should not be vaccinated, may you be free from a vaccine mandate? Or is your right to bodily autonomy, even if it's not religious, maybe you don't believe in God, but you say, I really firmly believe that I should be able to control what goes into my body. If I don't want this vaccine, I shouldn't be forced to have it. There are, there is a long line of cases talking about people's right to not receive unwanted medical treatment. Um, interestingly, ironically, uh, the strongest argument for uh, medical rights of those, let's say, conservatives 
uh, who, who want to not have the gun, who want to be free because of their convictions from getting a vaccine, their strongest constitutional argument is probably based on the modern line of cases that include Griswold versus Connecticut, Roe versus Wade, and uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which talk about a right to privacy, a right to bodily integrity, a right to control your own body. And so we may see some people who normally would be very opposed to Roe and Casey, as I am, uh, making the argument that, uh, well, under those cases, I should have a right, women have a right to decide to get an abortion, I have, should have a right to decline uh, a vaccination. All this has yet to play out. Uh, we're not sure where it's gonna go. The president, I think, can clearly order federal employees to be vaccinated because he's operating there, or the, uh, uh, he's operating there not as uh, a regulator, but as the, the CEO, if you will, the head of the executive branch of the United States government. And uh, the president, I think, has the power, as any employer does, to make conditions of work for people who want to uh, work there. So, you know, if you want to be a professor at Geneva College, uh, you can't walk around naked all day. It's just, you know, I mean, the, 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 the college president is very fussy about things like that. And so they, they have these rules, they have these rules, and employers can generally enforce their rules. And I think the president can, for, can enforce it. When you get to the point, though, of saying private employers are going to have this mandate, there's lots of potential legal challenges. So where do I come down on this? Well, the bottom line is, in times of crisis, constitutional rights on the whole have not fared terribly well. Uh, when there is a perception that we are facing life or death, whether it's the Civil War, whether it's uh, the Japanese Americans who think maybe you know, helping a Japanese invasion during World War II, whether it's the Patriot Act after 9-11, whether it's uh, some of the responses to uh, the COVID epidemic, um, very commonly, in the short term, the constitutional rights get pushed down or pushed aside in order to deal with the crisis. Generally, then, we return to something looking like the status quo ante uh, once that uh, once that crisis has, has passed. Um, COVID, of course, is interesting because nobody really knows how long we're going to be in crisis. A year ago, I would have told you, you know, by the fall of uh, 2021, we'll all have our masks off and we'll be back to normal spacing in our classrooms and not to be back to normal. And then the Delta variant came along and, and that changed. So you, you, never, you never really know. In the short term, uh, we, we seem to generally make the judgment of safety over individual liberty. Maybe that would change. Maybe, though, the tension is, is unavoidable. I'm not sure there's any answer to this. I'm not sure you could have written a constitution with some sort of emergency clause that would give us any better answers that would, that would more specifically, more clearly uh, deal with uh, problems like this when they when they come up. Um, this may be one of those that, that just the nature of human existence, the nature of law, the nature of government. This is what judges have to do. Judges have to have wisdom and discernment and know how to apply laws uh, in different circumstances, including perhaps 
uh, very, very extreme uh, circumstances. So we, we live with that, we live with the uncertainty. We need to try to put people in public office that we have as much confidence in as possible, people that we can trust to be honest, to be publicly interested rather than pursuing maybe their party's interest or pursuing some narrower agenda. We can try to do that, but then we go back to Genesis 3 and say, well, we're never going to do that perfectly. We can't solve these problems by giving ultimate authority uh, to a wise leader. So, so we live in the tension. We live in the tension. We pray uh, for resolution to the tension, and we try to keep the closest eye we can on the public servants who are making the judgments and, uh, and, and trust that they are doing the best they can to get us to the right answer. Okay, I'm gonna stop there and uh, take a few minutes for questions. I guess Dr. Nykirk has got a microphone, and so if you want to ask a question uh, about whatever you want to ask it about, um, just raise a hand. Everybody needs to wake up at this point. I'm sorry, yeah, the, the lecture's over, so. No questions means that I was either so brilliantly clear that no one wonders anything, or that I was so opaque that no one has a clue what to ask. Um, I think this is kind of something that we deal with right now with the COVID crisis. What, what is, and maybe this goes back to like the judge idea as well, but like what about when people have a disagreement over whether or not it's defined as a crisis, which is, I feel like, kind of where we're at now. Like there's a lot of people who say, oh, we don't need to wear masks for COVID because we're out of that point. Um, and then there's disagreement there. But like, I don't know, everyone can kind of agree, yeah, we're in crisis mode. So what happens at that stage? That's a great question. I wish I had an answer for that question. But the, the reality is, um, I mean, that's part of the whole dynamic. Um, and, and probably in any of these situations, you can find some people who perceived the level of danger differently. The, the strongest case on the other side would probably be 9-11. We had a very, very united uh, national response to that. <clears throat> You didn't find many people saying, ah, it's just 3,000, and they were ugly buildings anyway, and you know, that, you didn't hear that. Um, but most of these others, I think there are probably some who thought Lincoln overreacted uh, to the issue in Maryland. There were plenty of people who thought that uh, Japanese internment was a, was a uh, huge overreaction uh, to whatever potential there might have been. Um, you know, is it a crisis, or is the government you know, leaping into this because it's not a crisis. Certainly that's a central part of what we're dealing with right now. I think most of the people, uh, look, I'm vaccinated. I'm not opposed to vaccines, but I'm also very um, cognizant of the individual liberty arguments that people, you know, people are opposed to that for whatever conscientious reasons. You know, if we can, we should defer them. Are we in a place where we can't afford to do that? Are we in a place where the only way to end this is, is by mandating vaccines? I think most of the disagreement is not really over whether vaccines help, maybe a little bit of that, but, but whether it's necessary. Are, we, are things really that bad? Is it going to get worse or better? You see some reports that the Delta variant may be starting to 
to peter out are we going to get back to where we were six months ago or kind of years that, that we're wrapping up that's that's part of the whole issue if if, if everyone agrees it's a crisis like after 9 11 um, it's much easier i think to take a stand on response why do you think morality falls in all of this like, is it more moral to look out for the public good, or is it more moral to protect individual liberties? Well, I can't find you a Bible verse that says, you know, thou shalt get a vaccine when there's a public health crisis, or thou shalt not be forced by the government to get a vaccine. Um, I think, biblically, morally, uh, there is some room for individual conscience here. I, I am sad sometimes that I see a lot of Christians who don't even seem to be thinking about the protecting other people side of this, that the focus is simply on, I don't want to be vaccinated, and doggone it, I'm not going to be vaccinated. I think if you're gonna to get to that place, you should at least as a believer, first be starting with, I wanna treat other people the way I would want to be treated. I want to show the love of Jesus to others and at least consider the possibility, you know, that you, that you need to acquiesce in something that's not your first choice because the balance of, of downsides is so much more in, on, on the side of the general public than your own. I mean, for me, it was pretty easy. My three youngest kids uh, were special needs adoptions. They have very serious physical and mental disabilities and so at least one probably two of them would would die if they caught COVID. my youngest one would probably be killed by a bad cold um, she's she's very fragile uh, and and so for my wife and me it was when we get vaccinated we're going to get vaccinated because we, we've got to do everything we can do to not bring uh, that pandemic into our house and i recognize people have different perspectives uh, but i do think as believers We've got to come back to the golden rule and at least be talking about is there a higher interest here in protecting people broadly, in loving our neighbors, in loving even our enemies. Uh, the state enemies includes anyone who's not in your political party, right? That's how we meet enemies today. Um, that, 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 that ought to be part of the discussion, ought to be part of the perspective. They've seen all the people who have questions. Mm -hmm. right? I didn't get it. Yeah, they have a ticket. About the way that America is handling the vaccination, the vaccination struggle, I guess. How do you think this is helping or hurting America as a whole in the perspective of the rest of the world? I'm not really an internationalist. Uh, my focus is on American constitutional law, the Supreme Court. Um, I, I don't think America looks very good right now in how we're handling all of this. A lot of that, I think, is, is a consequence of the broader issue that we've lost the ability to engage in reasonable debate over public issues. Um, the other party has turned into the enemy. We, you know, people in Congress 
a lot of state legislatures before we even talk to each other. Um, and I think this, our response to COVID has sort of been pulled into that broader disintegration of civil discourse. And it just breaks my heart because you know, I'm a lawyer. We are trained to discuss issues and to be able to say, okay, I hear what you're saying, have you considered this? And you know, and, and go back and forth. I gave a talk uh, yesterday down at Duquesne Law School about uh, gay rights and religious liberty, uh, where I the, the basic thrust of my of my talk was, um, you know, both sides are going to have to realize they can't wipe out the other side. Uh, conservative traditional moralists are not going to make the LGBT community go away, and the LGBT community is not going to make people who believe that sex is supposed to be a marriage. They're not going to make them go away, and we've got to start. Stop trying to wipe each other out and start trying to make sure everybody has space to live their own lives. If you're not a same sex marriage, you can do it, uh, but you don't force the guy who's religiously opposed to, to make the cake for you, those kind of things. And a good chunk of the people in the room, including the professor from Duquesne who responded to me, held a very different perspective than I do on issues like homosexuality. But we were able to have a really good collegial discussion and challenge one another in a, in a friendly way. Um, our culture is really losing that a bit. Do you still do the debates in, in uh, was it 552? Is that the? 352. Um, great experience, great experience to be able to sit down with someone who's arguing on the other side of an issue and present points powerfully and well without calling names, without demonizing, to, to be able to engage in civil discourse is falling apart. And I think this is part of that. I think our response has gotten so caught up in that that we look pretty bad. We look like a country that can't come together and work towards reasonable ends on anything because we're all too busy yelling and calling each other names. So you mentioned earlier about how states have different rights and powers in comparison to the federal government. Um, you, you were talking about how the federal government is restricted to what the Constitution says they can do, and the states can do things so long as the Constitution says they can. Can't. Doesn't tell me that they can't do it. Um, do you think that, like, in our current sort of where we ended up in our political system at this point, that states actually can do that, whether it's, like, we, we, we say that they can, but do they, or would that actually be able to be something that different states could do? Are you asking, could states impose a vaccine mandate? Well, more, more at, do states really have the power, whether socially or politically, to actually do that? I think, yes, they do, uh, and I think that's not nearly as, as controversial. Um, this, we can't even begin to dig into some of the stuff your question raises. It goes into issues of, of federalism, the idea of, by the way, one, one nitpick, um, I don't think states have rights. Uh, rights are granted by the creator to human beings. Um, and so people have rights, states have sovereignty. Uh, people gave sovereignty to the national government, people gave sovereignty to the state governments, and the question is, can we maintain those two in balance? That was brand new for the American founders. 
uh, that they that they tried to say we're going to be a sovereign nation made up of sovereign states, and it has largely gotten trashed in the last hundred years. And I guess it's way too much to, to to try to to try to dig into. But it's still pretty well accepted today that states have police powers. States can pass laws for the public good uh, unless they violate some individual right, either under the state constitution or under the federal constitution. And I think that uh, that Jacobson case from uh, hundred years ago is, is still good law with the states. So if Pennsylvania mandates that all employers over a certain size will must require vaccines, in all likelihood that's going to be upheld by the courts, although there may be individual exceptions based on religious liberty or bodily autonomy or something like that. But as a general proposition, I think the states can do it. And maybe the feds can too. It's just a closer call with the feds. It's not as obvious. We probably have time for one more. Okay, so in a lot of the examples you gave, the options taken later on were first. Um, probably what we're concerned with is the ability of the government to reverse the options it's taking now, in particular with its mandates on church um, gatherings and sizes, which judges argue is correctly in the violation of the Constitution. I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Um, but, but I will say I expect COVID restrictions to go away if COVID ever ends. Um, and you know, what does end even look like at this point? I guess if, it's, if it reaches a point where enough people have, are vaccinated or have caught COVID and have resistance where it's no more virulent than you know, the ordinary flu maybe, then we all take off our masks and stop you know, touching elbows and, and go back to normal life. I would expect those restrictions to go away. I think there would be huge pushback both through the legal system and uh, within the courts, but also through public opinion if the government was to try to say, well, no, you can only have so many people in the church, um, you, know, you can't sing, you gotta wear a mask, if, if we were not in that kind of a crisis. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen, and I don't know how long this is gonna keep playing out. That's one of the, one of the most troubling things. But I, I don't think there's any reason to assume that these emergency actions taken during COVID will become sort of, uh, you know, normal operating procedure once COVID is passed. I think churches will be back to doing, doing what they do and not having to worry about the government telling you how many people. I mean, we still have fire codes, right? We still have limits on how many people you can fit in a building or in a room, even without that. But they haven't ever been before, and I think they'll go back to being not on this Well, thank you very much. Uh, I suspect some of you will get to talk about these issues in other places over the next few months and years. Um, but uh, let's uh, thank Professor Jay.